right, welcome back to the show. Uh, it was a few years ago, actually, that uh, this article was pr- uh, pr- uh, printed, and uh, you'll you'll find it in a variety of places uh, online as well. But most notably, motorcyclist uh, online. Uh, easy enough, motorcyclistonline.com. Type in the eleven most important motorcycles of all time. And that's one of the reasons Mark Bennell's in uh, studio. Somebody I respect a great deal when it comes to the history of motorcycling. Uh, he's the owner of Pole Position Indoor Karting Center. It's more than that. It's a total, you know, flat-out experience. There's gaming. Uh, there's racing going on. And it's super, super fast. If you have never been to Pole Position, go check it out in Grimes. It's very close, conveniently located, by Hicklin Power Sports. I don't know what's going on there in that whole strip of uh, activity there besides the cars racing by at amazing speeds. But uh, you can also get great racing at Pole Position Raceway. Mark, welcome back. A longtime host of this program as well. Glad to be back. It's uh, it's nice to come in, every, you know, once a year or twice a year and and uh, have a nice fresh perspective on it. I, I miss it. Tony, there are motorcycles that have been credited as having changed the world, literally, in significance, power, prestige, and prominence. And we start the conversation with, uh, well, w- which one do you want to start with, PJ? They're all awesome. To me, uh, the, the one that stands out the most would probably be the GSX, 1985 GSX-R750, but that's just because of my age and when I was coming into my own as a motorcyclist. That was the bike. Um, Remember that, that the blue, the red and white. Oh yeah, oh, and the man. blue and white. I mean the ninja. Yes. The ninja nine hundred had recently rocked our worlds right on the heels of one of the other bikes on this list. The VFR started the eighties off with a bang, and I was really into those. But the the ninja nine hundred immediately uh, displaced the VFR as a serious sport bike, and much like the, as soon as the GSX-R came out, the Ninja became old hat. Mark, the Honda CB750 for me was a hallmark bike, and for many, it's uh, considered to be the bike that changed everything. Why so? I think one of the reasons for, for one, it was a Honda, Yeah. and, you know, they were just kind of getting in into everything right then, and, and uh, it was, a, you know, kind of the first real four-cylinder bike that was really popular and i remember everybody when i was a kid and i'm a little it's a little before my time but we we all called him dosh because dual overhead cam you know (laughs) when that hit we were kids we didn't know what it was we just knew they were really cool and every cool guy had one and then when the when they started putting pipes on them that's when it really turned into the thing that it was. Think yeah. about it. It, de- it debuted in 69, right? Yeah. So 1969, and they were selling more than, Tony, get this, 60,000 of them a year. Yeah. Now, do you remember any any idea what the retail price on that bike was back then? Uh, it had to be in the teens. Probably fourteen ninety nine or yeah. something like that. And probably about half of what its competitors that being a norton that being a triumph that being a bmw or a ducati that would have been in the market space that they immediately went in and dominated they're probably half the price of whatever those bikes were but what made it unique is the way they packaged it uh not only was it affordable it was also state-of-the-art technology they didn't break a lot of ground technologically speaking but they endorsed it and combined it packaged it put it at an affordable price and all of a sudden america went riding they were amazing bikes and they what they didn't do was leak and break down which was new for anything in that uh 
in that category, uh, the BMWs of the world and the Moto Guzzi's, I guess, didn't break down much, but they also didn't do 12-second uh, quarter miles. Tony, it had that straight-on uh, frontal approach with the, the, the quad exhaust coming out and then you know, going into a combined pipe at the back. So you had, uh, you know, I thought a beautiful presentation. I thought their color selection and color offerings were phenomenal. You agree with that, Tony? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not partial I'm to I'm surprised you don't have one. I may. <laughs> I, you may have had Just one. Just haven't found it no, yet. No, I may have one now. It might be know. somewhere yeah. in the list. It, it, I don't know. I, Can I have it? I'm super into the old, like the KZ... The, the K- yeah K- I'm, really, and- I'm really into the jap the 70s and 80s jap bikes uh yeah k1 super cool the the 750 triple the the those bikes are, are really neat i've got a kz650 that i that i bought for uh for a hooligan down at my racetrack when we had the flat track and that's a shame you know what i did to that bike but <laughs> whatever <laughs> they made millions of them they're all over the place well it was voted by the way the 750 was voted the most outstanding bike of the first 100 years of motorcycling really so think about that that's neat i, I think that makes sense and and you it know does. what we've what we've gotten away from is cheap uh fun two-wheelers and that's that was what the 750 really that was its breakthrough really most important breakthrough people who had never thought of owning a motorcycle all of a sudden could look at i could own that and ride across the country gotta remember this is a time reliable yeah that's it good gas mileage and it also broke the stereotype of japan being nothing but a copycat manufacturing company or country rather and it set honda in particular aside and on its own trail and there there were a lot of fans that came along and we'll we'll uh, continue to talk about the 750 for years to come 1960 triumph t120 bonneville why is that an important bike mark well i think that's kind of the the benchmark for the european bike you know i think everybody had one it seemed like at the time and and they were the bike that was in all the movies and it was again it was you know it was a parallel twin and it was a pretty reliable bike we got to say pretty reliable because it did have (laughs) english electronics because honda hadn't hadn't wasn't a word yet in (laughs) 1960 that the entire world knew about it left left in stock condition they were reliable here's why honda did well compared to the other brands suzuki Kawasaki, Yamaha, they all sound Japanese. Honda sounded kind of American. Right. And it was and back then, I mean, that wasn't that much you know, Pearl Harbor wasn't 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 that far long ago. No. Still <laughs> little still little frat people lived through that. Well so. into the nineties, my grandfather would uh, pretty much deride me for every Japanese motorcycle that I owned. Um Every single one. I yeah, can't he, believe he you're really doing that. Yeah, he, he fought personally in World War II, and wow. yeah, he was more than a little crestfallen when I showed up on my newest shiny Honda or whatever, Yamaha. Didn't matter. He knew they were Japanese. So from one to two, the Triumph T120 Bonneville, let's go back to Mark. Yeah, all that, you know, they, they got that bike up to 214 miles an hour in the back of then. <laughs> and so that was that was something that was a big head, oh, yeah. head turner for everyone. And it was the had the the Daytona held the, you know, it was the fastest motorcycle in the world, the Triumph Daytona. Or yeah. Yeah, and, and the shooter mufflers, you remember those? Yep. And uh-huh. that 650 parallel twin is still still manufactured today. Isn't I mean, it amazing. It, it's it's almost everybody has one now they're they're racing them in flat track again paul newman had yeah. one steve mcqueen had one paul mccartney had one bob dylan rode one 
I mean, that's a classic. The Fonz rode one. Who the Fonz rode one Fons. very well. That was it. Was wasn't it? Yeah, everybody's always oh, I was a Harley. No, nope, he nope. had us. He had a sporty in some episodes, but mostly Evil he was Knievel on a triumph. One? Yeah, the, the triumph right, well, was the man. thing. <laughs> no, he wrote it pretty well. Nineteen forty nine Harley Davidson FL Hydroglide comes in at number three. Uh, Tony, you have become a fan, I think, if, and maybe I'm overestimating this, but you've become a fan of Harley Davidson for a lot of reasons. Why this bike, the forty nine edition of the Hydroglide? Mm, I'm not. Uh, you're, you're asking. I I ride some Harleys. Yeah. I'm Does okay. it mean you're a fan? No. Okay. I'm not saying I'm not a fan, and, and we've <laughs> there ain't there's nothing like. An Ultra Glide, or whatever that thing is that I ride. What this, is that bike, PJ? It's got a tele- telescopic a real good, fork. That's one a of real the main good. Things. Yeah, that was for this bike. The one yeah. you ride, I th- you. The it's CDL. a full. Dr- oh. You have the full dresser, well, and you also have a Fat Boy. I think that you've yeah, ridden in on. Yeah, I got the Fat Boy, but the the Ultra. Ultra Classic, yeah, it's the full dress Ultra Classic. Well, I this, don't know their nomenclature. This much particular like bike is the one that inspired millions of imitations, both uh, from within Harley Davidson's own styling department, but also as the Japanese jumped on the bandwagon and began building American-style heavyweight cruisers. We go to the next bike, number four on the list. This one is, I don't think there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, contention about this, or at least disagreement, uh, but the 1923 BMW R32. Mark, what does this bike remind you of? And if you say Harley-Davidson, I won't disagree. Uh, no, actually, to me, it reminds me of a Triumph when I look at it. But, really? But, yeah, that that bike I'm not all that familiar with. Has a swept-back look. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it it looks like uh, like what somebody would build today, a cafe racer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are, in fact, some very currently very cool customs that are reminiscent of this. BMWs, in fact, where gentlemen have customized modern ones to have this motorcycle's very silhouette. Uh, BMW is my world. I grew up on them really? and participated in vintage BMWs for decades. Uh, this... This bike is important from a technological standpoint, most importantly, and it put BMW on a path other than their World War One airplane role, put them into the motorcycle-slash-automotive world, and they showed what they could do. This The bike led to every important BMW after it. And that R32, by the way, BMW R32, Max Frizz, uh, designed this thing and he would not have put his name on it if they hadn't had that power transfer via shaft drive that was a huge deal because prior to that most bikes matter of fact the majority of the bikes were all chain right and uh this this really was a a neat departure from that gave you a completely different uh sense of control uh the harley excuse me the bmw engines were very very cool i think uh, boxer configuration, cooling, and a recirculating wet sump oil system. It was a remarkable design. And for instance, uh, his design deserves so much credit. Even 90 years later, it still, still forms the foundation of BMW's most popular models. Uh, number five, Vincent Black Shadow, the 1948 edition. It's been immortalized on drag strips, dry lake beds, and even celebrated in song. But the Black Shadow's most lasting impact, perhaps, was its influence on future motorcycle design agree or disagree mark again there's one that totally went cafe racer mm. you know so it does it has a lot of norton in it doesn't it yeah he, he just out norton uh norton the the designer behind uh phil irving uh behind vincent and all their offerings 
it's known as the Gentleman's Express for a reason. Yeah. That is literally what this bike is called. Easily capable of well in excess of 100 miles an hour in an era where that meant something. Airplanes could only go, you know, they had just crested that number recently. Uh, that was a gorgeous bike. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly beautiful. Still rebuilt by guys who just love machinery. They're beautiful bikes. About nine minutes as we head to the top of the hour. We're looking at the top 11. If we get all 11, cool. If we don't, I'm cool with that because the next bike on the list is perhaps the most recognizable for most of us across the country, no matter where you ride or race. It is the 1973 Honda CR250 Elsinore. Mark Bennell, why is this an important bike? Game changer. I mean, it really showed that Honda had a finger on the pulse of what the motocross world was really looking for uh, kind of put an end to the you know i mean i used, that's about when i started racing and i rode, rode some motorcycles that i carried a whole extra gear set around because i had to put gears in them in between the motos like i'd drop one of my makos would drop second or third gear every other moto so really I, i'd have yeah i'd have to take the transmission apart and put gears in it wow what yeah, seriously. It was quite common. I told you it's a good mechanic. Honda yet again shows up with a reliable piece that lets you just go racing. Yep, exactly. But this bike was uh, designed specifically for road racing, and the Japanese had never designed anything like this, um, but it is a tricked-out bike for sure, coming from the factory, very reliable, very inexpensive. Uh, and it was named after Southern California's epic Elsinore Grand Prix, or Grand Prix, if you will. Um, and it's straight from the, the race shop to the track. You could just go racing the moment you got it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Gary, uh, Gary Jones won, you know, the national championship that year, one of his four. And, uh, yeah, I've talked to him a little bit at some of the races when we used to race, and, and it, was, it was a very easy transition for him. You know, he, from making his own motorcycles to that one to whatever he was doing, but and yeah, and Honda was really known as by then even a four-stroke company. They right. were a four-stroke company and the, and proud of it. So making a two-stroke, a really good one, um, just showed the, how diverse they could be if they what wanted. What do we to. average uh, like KTM? What is KTM averaging horsepower now uh, on say a bike that would be comparable to this? Sixty. Uh, a 252 stroke. Okay, I mean, well, not, a 252 stroke. I would say you're in the 40s. Right. This was 40s. this was 29 yeah, horsepower, yeah, 50, guys. 50. 29 horsepower, and but, it was uh, super lightweight. That was the thing that it was that wasn't in the industry at that time. And it didn't break. Right. And killer the, aluminum had, gas tank. Had, had the killer aluminum gas tank, and it had the powder coated uh, pipes. I just think it, it was a complete departure from what we knew prior to that. Next up, the 79 Yamaha RD. 400F Daytona Special Tony Wing. I had a 77, I believe it was, RD400 that I rode. I <clears throat> I bought it. I bought it at Country Cycle. Because you needed to come to town. I You were having, <laughs> you had a suite. Yep. I, you had a suite at the Cubs game, and I thought, That's man, exactly that is super right. cool. And I, and I, so I went to Donnie and I said, hey, what do you have that I can borrow? And he said, nothing. And I go, <laughs> I really want to ride a street bike. And he said, I'll finance you this one. What is it? And it was this. It was mint, and I, I remember ruined it. I didn't understand. Oh man, they're worth a million. They are. You worth didn't understand the mint. significance. I didn't know what it, what I had, and I I ruined the thing and sold it oh. for like nothing. Oh, they're worth a ton. Four hundreds in particular. I rode it up and down 
the, the steps and and oh, like breaking motocro- my heart, Tony. Ro- motocross the thing, bash the pipes in and all of it. I'm uh, telling you, it was showroom when I oh, bought it. Oh man, it was cool bikes. when I saw it. I was like, oh, oh you would have had uh, <laughs> you would have had a jade green or a Daytona orange were the options in '79, I think, or silver. Uh, the there was also a blue one. There was also a blue and silver. Mine was bright red with white white. Jag stripes or whatever. Oh yeah, that, I call that the Daytona orange. It, it, it looked that's... red, but it was they actually called it orange. So it's a two-stroke killer, two-cylinder, parallel twin. Two-stroke. I would wheelie that thing, and here's <laughs> here's what happened. I was going down South Union. I wheeled wheelied it through the stop sign and went from basically where Kung Fu is all the way to almost Army Post. And the thing, I don't know if it was because it was vertical and that was a problem or what but i the thing seized on me yeah that happens when oil you uh, well you ran out of you ran out of fuel probably and two-stroke oil because it probably was struggling to pump it so it's scavenging, scavenging the, bottom. the pump so yeah. it seized yeah. on me and it was making this and then there was a cop <laughs> it was crying and so i'm like what is i 19 maybe yeah. eight, 18 something like that and there's this cop so i ditched the thing behind mike hayes's house <laughs> and we who's passed now and we uh, so I we went and we were like, well, we're having a party, so I'm just gonna go hang out at the Hickman's, and then uh, I went and got the thing the next morning, and it started, and I was surprised. Sure, it did. The, the rings had kind of reformed. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I I had that bike, That's and I ruined crazy. it because I'm a fool. You I didn't know. It. All right, uh, final bike we're gonna get to in the hour is the 1980, and this one I disagree with. Uh, it's level of importance. I'm sure there are many of you out there that will disagree with me, but the 1980 Honda GL 1100 Goldwing Interstate, um, Honda's Goldwing really invented the modern luxury touring concept. Of, and, and if you know what I'm talking about, it was a comfortable bike. It was a big bike. You really thought you had something between your legs and you did because you had an, a, a step up seat for the rider on the back, the, the, the guest, if you will, the chick seat. But uh, this was a bike that really caught the uh, interest of a whole lot of folks that, for what, one reason or another, had kind of left riding because they no longer wanted to ride the dirt bike style. Well, this one took and put you right back on the road. I th- you say you don't think it's important. I think that's probably the most important for on-road that you've mentioned because you could go literally across country, and it was built for that. You're, you're, you, it wouldn't shake you apart. That thing run like – when it's when it's correct, it ran like a sewing machine. They're super smooth and, and very still, powerful for the era. Very powerful. They're still powerful. Yeah, a new Goldwing rips. Yeah, dude. You, 100, 120 horsepower from zero to redline. They dude, are just super so strong. Cool. They and you see, you can find a video of a guy dragging his knee on a Goldwing. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. There's Those a guy that does the deals gap out in. Uh, out in the North Georgia, South Tennessee, yeah, the the Deals Gap area on a yellow Goldwing that just kills it. Fully dressed. I mean, this bike looked good, uh, and, and a lot of guys had them custom painted. I know my buddy uh, Randy's dad had one that had custom painted, but 1100 cc sounded good. It it wasn't too loud, but uh, it was it was amazing. It's been 38 years, 38, 39, 40, 41 years since an inter, inter, its introduction, and nothing truly has approached the wing in its uh, terms of performance, function, comfort, or style. I think the Goldwing is to uh, touring what Harley is to cruisers. Everybody, the, Kawasaki had the Voyager, Suzuki had the Cavalcade, Yamaha, all of them have 
copied. Gone by the gone by the wayside. The Goldwing has remained, and they've all it's been duplicated, but never or, or replicated, but never duplicated. Mark? What, what's missing on the list? I think should have been the YZ four hundred. I'm going to say the Husaberg, but that's you know personally. Yeah. But the YZ four hundred four stroke motorcycle should change change dirt bikes forever, and I don't think in a good way. Mark, <laughs> and there Mark, it is. Mark, there it is. We, we appreciate you coming in and joining us from Pole Position Raceway and Grimes. Always good to see PJ in the studio, guys. Thank you so much. Let's go karting. Let's do it. Let's go karting. Go karting. Anyway, hey, thanks to Garrett Gerloff, Hayden Gillum, Dave Selecki, Frank Fritz, and Rome Ramirez of Sublime with Rome. For all of us in the studio, Tony Wink and yours truly, Scott Casper, thanks for listening. May I have your attention, please? Excuse me. Are you listening to me? Thank you. The preceding was an exclusive presentation of Pit Pass Motor Racing Weekly, a division of Pit Pass Radio LC. Any use of this copyrighted material without the express written consent of Pit Pass Radio LC is strictly prohibited. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast